Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Good morning. Uh, my name is Phil. For those of you who don't know me, uh, it's great to have you with us. And you're in our new home. Um, I hope you can forgive me, but I'm going to make an assumption uh, about you this morning. I hope you'll consider it to be a fair assumption. And the assumption is this, that at some point in your life, you will have received an invitation. Now, I, I think it's a warm feeling, isn't it, when someone invites you to something. If you think back to childhood, uh, you maybe get an invitation to a birthday party of a friend or a classmate, and then you get into teenage years, and friends or just simply acquaintances invite you to a house party, or friends of your own family get you round to a barbecue. There are lots of different kinds of invitations, aren't there? They're all good, really, the kind of would-you-like-to questions, the please-come-and type of requests. The making and receiving of invitations, I think, is a good thing. And today we're going to talk about a parable where Jesus uh, actually describes an invitation and then what happens as a result of it. But before we read the parable, what I want to do is I want to set a bit of a framework for you, because I think if we can understand the setting and the context a little bit uh, for some of the parables that Jesus shares with us, I think it will help us to get greater depth from them. So here's a few headline pieces of information about this particular parable. First of all, it's important to remember that Jesus, in this setting that we're going to come to in Luke 14, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are under foreign occupation. So I'm talking about the Jewish people that Jesus has grown up with, uh, amongst whom now he seeks to teach them. They are not masters their own destiny. They live in this kind of continual tension between political and military power of a government that's based a long, long way away, and the spiritual power and the influence of the high priests and the synagogue leaders and the Pharisees. They, these people live in attention. The other thing to bear in mind is that is where we are at this moment with this particular meal that Tom started out with last week, that Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are in a Pharisee's home. Now, we already know that there's a bit of friction here. Jesus has been pretty plain, really, about his views of the Pharisees and the experts in the law. He's described them as hypocrites, uh, and he also knows that they're watching him. So there's a bit of information just to consider. A couple of historical facts, theological facts for you to be aware of as well. The first of those being that the Jews, this is Jesus's people, they have been living with an expectation of a time coming in the future when they will be with Yahweh again. They are expecting, they are looking forward to a wedding feast. It's been prophesied by Isaiah, and we'll read that together in a few moments' time. So they're looking forward to this time in the future. They're also expecting a Messiah to come, that a new king would emerge and he would reinstate the nation of Israel to glory. These are all the things that are in the minds of the people that Jesus is speaking to. And we also, today, when we read this parable, I think it's important to think about it in the the wider context 
of the things that Jesus has been seeking to teach. So if you flip back a few pages, if you had a Bible with you and you went from Luke 14, you flip back and you got to chapter 10, you started reading again, what you'd find is that Jesus spends quite a lot of time talking about and explaining the nature of a kingdom that is coming on the earth. And he's also talking about how heaven will come and what his role is in the midst of that and how we enter into this kingdom and ultimately end up in heaven with him. He's explaining his role as part of it. In chapter 10, if you went back, you'd find that Jesus says that we only get to see who the Father is through the Son. In chapter 12, he says that those who acknowledge him, those who acknowledge Jesus, he will also acknowledge them before the angels of God. So I want you to have all of that in your mind as we come to Luke chapter 14. If you have a Bible with you in a moment, we're going to read it together. So here's the setting. Picture this if you can. There's a group of people sitting at a meal, pious, serious people. They have no meaningful authority in the place that they live. They've sought, therefore, to build up a kind of false authority, the Pharisees, by twisting and turning the law of the Torah. And as Jesus describes it, placing burdens upon people. They've puffed up their own importance. But they still believe that a time is coming in the future when the Messiah will arrive and he'll bring them liberty and they'll ultimately enter into heaven and enjoy this great wedding feast. Jesus is trying to tell them that Messiah has now come and the way to paradise is being marked out for them. And he's trying to put that in terms that relate to the things that are happening right there in front of them. We get to this parable, Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 7, he says, when he noticed how the guests at this meal picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone, pause, who? Who is the someone? Who is he talking about? When someone invites you to a wedding feast, bear in mind the experts in the law, that, that generates an image in their mind. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you give us these stories, these illustrations, these means of trying to and helping us to understand your heart and understand your purposes for your people. Lord Jesus, we want to receive from your words today. Our hearts are open, our minds are open, we are hungry for more of you. Lord Jesus, I pray actually for us right now that you would stir a hunger, you would stir a thirst in us for you first and foremost and everything that would come from you in the form of your word and your work in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder a few minutes ago what your mind was drawn to when I talked about receiving an invitation. You may remember something very 
specific. You may be able to even now picture the invitation that you were given. Maybe it's an invitation that you received or maybe it's an invitation that you sent. It may be that you don't actually recall the last time you had an invitation to a wedding or a trip to the pub. Maybe the idea of invitation stirs up stuff you'd actually rather forget about. When I think about invitations, I, I gravitate towards weddings. Now, obviously, Claire and I, I had the privilege some years ago, 20-some years ago, of issuing invitations to our wedding. I also quite clearly remember uh, getting the invitation to a wedding of some close friends of mine. I was about 19 or 20. I, I, think, I think they were the first friends of mine to get married. And a few years ago, some other good friends of ours, they got married. We'd known her uh, for a while, and we were around as she met this guy, and we were able to watch their relationship develop. It was really very exciting. Just a few weeks ago, I was invited to a cricket match. Thank you, Pete, which is a good thing, by the way. But whether it's an anticipated wedding or a one-off cricket match or a barbecue at the end of a busy week, what an invitation does is it affirms relationship, doesn't it? An invitation, it's, it's thought about, it's specific, it's personal. It's a choice that the inviter makes to select the invitee. You take a couple, for example, planning their wedding day, they will deliberate over who they will invite. They will take extraordinary measures sometimes to make sure the details are communicated. You know, the modern trend is a thing called a save the date card. They really, they don't want to miss you. They don't want to miss you in case you plan to do something else. A lot of time, a lot of effort goes into planning that guest list. It's very important to those issuing the invitation. As a result, to receive an invitation in those circumstances should tell you that the inviter really thinks very highly of you. In this parable, what's happened is that the host of the wedding feast has issued invitations. But who is it? Who is this host? Are we supposed to hear this just as a story, just as an example, or is it possible that Jesus has someone very specific in mind? I want to suggest to you that Jesus is actually talking about himself. And there are two reasons to think that. The first reason is that because of everything Jesus has been teaching in the preceding chapters, so I explained to you that he's been talking about the coming of the kingdom and his place in that. And the second reason to think that he's talking about himself is that the second thing that we'll come to in a few minutes time, where at the end of the parable, he talks about those who humble themselves being exalted. Does that sound a little bit like Jesus? What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read you, and I think Anoush is going to share some, some of these on the, on the screen for us. I'm going to share with you some prophetic words from the book of Isaiah. And I want you to bear in mind as we read this that the people at this meal who were listening to Jesus, they knew this prophecy very well. They probably had memorized it. It goes like this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and finest of wines. Sounds good to me. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, 
the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is a promise. It's a promise to the people of God that a time is coming when their enemies will be defeated and the whole world will see the power and strength of Yahweh. The same promise remains true today for us and, and here's the even better news, and it is coupled now to a prophecy in Revelation 19 that goes like this. This is what the Revelation says. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That is you and I. So what's happening in this moment, during this meal, is that Jesus is addressing people who believe they are the bride that is being made ready for a banquet. At the end of time, when they will be wedded to their Messiah, he's also speaking, Jesus is also speaking to us who are on the other side of the cross as those whose revelation of Jesus includes the description of this coming wedding feast. And he's doing that in this extended prophetic statement that he'd started back in Luke chapter 10, where he's doing his absolute best to explain that the kingdom of God is upon them. In the same way that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so now this generation has their sign in the form of Jesus himself. What he's saying is, I am the host of the wedding feast. You are invited. You know, it's okay to allow ourselves to get excited about this. I remember that invitation that I spoke about a few moments ago, back in my late teens, these two friends, Rich and Lau, they announced they were to be married. They're a couple of years older than me, but a, a group of us, we come quite close with one another, and this invite was like a real buzz. It felt like, a, it, felt like it was the only thing happening for a period of time. There was like joy, there was anticipation, there was planning, there was a lot of fun. So whether your experience of invitations is positive or negative, I want you to know there is an enduring, personal, heartfelt invitation, something that is worth us getting excited about. So this morning, I want to reiterate Jesus' invitation to you. He stands here before you now, having chosen you, having selected you. Come and be a part of this wedding, be a part of this celebration. What that means is that if you're yet to accept 
the invitation, then you should know that you are very, very welcome. What that means, if you have already accepted the invitation, is what it says in Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is like a poetic, a kind of prophetic picture of this wedding that we're expecting. It speaks to the bride being prepared for her groom. It says this, listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your Lord. Church, our response to this invitation has been to say yes, we have accepted. Now, our part is to do what most of us would do, I think, when we are going to attend a wedding. We get ourselves ready. So the second thing that I want to cover this morning from this parable is how we enter into this feast. What does it mean to get ready? Obviously, what's happened at this meal is that people have been coming in and they've been looking for the places of honour around the dinner table. Now, for us, we need to take just a little moment to kind of grasp what's actually happening here. Because in our culture, it, the, probably the closest thing we get to it is when you go, you know when you go to someone's house for a meal and you have that funny moment, don't you, uh, when you all sort of stand around this table and everyone says, where would you like us to sit? Now, it's a good question to ask because, you know, for practical reasons, you know, the host might need to get up and go and collect things from the kitchen. But basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to order ourselves, aren't we? You know, a couple of weeks ago in community group, I, I managed to successfully pin myself into our dining table, seated in a corner where for me to get out, about three other people needed to move. So just a note, if you don't want to have to get running to the kitchen, find a place where you can't get out and everyone else has to do the work. Um, Tony Preston, if he was here, would attest to the truth of that. The other thing that happens, I think less frequently these days, it was more common when I was a child, is that the head of the house would sit at the top of the table. It kind of went without being said that my grandfather would sit in a particular place. And then people started buying round dining tables and it didn't really work anymore. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's observing a behaviour to try and illustrate something about the kingdom that's intended to both challenge some preconceived ideas in the minds of those hearing the story, but then really importantly, is to set a pattern for the culture of the kingdom that we are now all a part of. Ultimately, Jesus is going to show us what it looks like to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can read back through those preceding chapters and you can see that Jesus refers to how the last will be first. Or it says in the previous chapter of Luke, on the third day, I will reach my goal. At the end of this parable, he says that those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what will happen is that Jesus will enter heaven again sometime after he's eaten this meal with these Pharisees. But his route into heaven, his way back home is the cross, it's the grave, and then it's resurrection, and then it's ascension. Jesus will humble himself in a way that most of us will never 
experience. He will be humiliated. He will be rejected and abandoned. He'll be denied. He'll be murdered. What Jesus is saying in this parable is this, is that the invitation stands. The invitation is not going to be taken away from you. Your entrance into the wedding feast is open. What Jesus is asking you in this parable is how will you enter? How will you make yourself ready? It said in Psalm 45, didn't it? It said, let the king be enthralled with your beauty. Honour him, for he is your Lord. Is the king enthralled with your beauty? Is the king enthralled with your beauty? I know that on that day, in Revelation 19, that our king will be enthralled with the beauty of the church. There will be fine linen, bright and clean. It's being given to us to wear. It's the, the fine linen is the righteous acts of God's people. And Jesus, in this parable, shows us what that humility, that righteous act of humility, he shows us what it looks like. There are two things. The first is this. Don't assume that the place Jesus has for you is the place you want. You now look at the Pharisees at their moment in, that, in history there. They're struggling, aren't they, to find their place, both kind of globally and locally. You know, are, do they follow Roman rule or do they not follow Roman rule? Do they, how do they lead the people? How should the Jewish people of their communities follow them? They, they, don't, they can't figure that out. And so they twist and they turn and they manipulate. That's how they handled it. How do we handle it? How do we handle finding our place? Now, I'm going to be really honest with you here. From time to time, this has been a problem for me. I have been guilty of making that a problem for other people. And I am sorry if you have ever been on the receiving end of that. I like to have influence. I like my voice to be heard. I like to be a part of steering things to the place that I believe they should go. You may have already figured that out about me. In my case, humility looks like trusting other people to make decisions without the benefit of my great wisdom. Imagine what actually happens and what it actually means is that I am trusting that other people that he is using are just as capable of hearing his voice as I am. You may have situations in your family or in your work life. You may have situations in this church where you think, what on earth are you doing? But maybe right now you don't have any influence over it because that's not the place Jesus has given you. Or maybe they just aren't listening to you, at least. Either way, the thing that you want to happen 
isn't happening. That is when humility kicks in. It's when we effectively say, Jesus, this is your party. You arrange the seats, and when you call me forward, I'll say thank you. If that's your situation, if you know that today you're facing something like that, you're like, I don't know what's going on, but I have no influence, I have no voice, I don't know how to affect it. I know how hard that is. It hurts. And I'd be very glad to pray with you at the end of our time together. The second thing I wanted to pick out from this is handling anxiety. Now, did you know that there is a relationship between humility and our tendency to worry? Why do you think that when the guests were coming into that meal, that they sought out the places of honour? There were various reasons, obviously, for that. But one of them is that I think they were worried about their status. They were worried about the connections that they had within the community. You see, a meal like that is it's an opportunity, isn't it, to, to demonstrate your debating skills or to ingratiate yourself to a higher-ranked Pharisee. They're proud people. So pride generates anxiety, and pride is the opposite of humility. Therefore, humility calms anxiety. Pride says, I can do this. Pride says, I know better. Pride says, I don't need to rely on anyone else. See, the opposite of humility is basically to take satisfaction in ourselves. When we make ourselves, or anyone other than Jesus, the source of our confidence, the source of our security, or wisdom, or provision, it's inevitable that anxiety will follow. The reason it's inevitable is that everyone and everything outside of God who is infinite, everyone else has limitations. What Jesus is looking for is that we take satisfaction in him. Peter writes this in the New Testament. Apostle Peter said, 1 Peter 5, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. At the end of this parable, Jesus makes it really clear that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus himself would be humbled before he was exalted. Peter is saying, do likewise. Cast your anxiety onto God as a demonstration of humility. And then at the proper time, the one he chooses, you will also be exalted. You know, turning away from our proud self-reliance, it's in itself an act of righteousness. It demonstrates how our satisfaction, our confidence is in the Father and not in ourselves. And in that place of submission, anxiety begins to crumble. I think it's taken me about 
47 years to realize that the best way that I can tackle anxiety is to submit myself to God. I went through a phase in my life a few years ago when I failed to cast my anxiety onto God. What I did was I took control and I tried to solve problems that were around me and essentially I just spiralled into more and more worry. Pride at that moment in my life was battering humility. The only way out was through satisfaction in Jesus. That is the route to freedom. Before we finish, I want to do two things. Firstly, I want to pass on that invitation. I've done it a number of times already in the last sort of 20 or so minutes, but I want to pass on an invitation. You know, there is a wedding feast of the Lamb, that is Jesus, that is coming for all of us. It's unknown. We don't know when it's coming, but at some point in the future it is. And all those that the Father has selected, hand-selected, picked out, chosen, gathered together, will be brought together. And there'll be no more tears or pain or suffering. There'll be eternal joy and freedom in his presence. I want to say to you that if you are yet to accept this invitation, I want to invite you to accept it right now. That if you know, actually, I need to take that invitation, I'm going to give you a moment. I'm going to invite you to stand up where you are. If you know, actually, as yet, I have not received that invitation, but I want to receive it. I want to take hold of it. I want to accept it. I'm going to give you a moment to just respond to that and say, yes, I'll take it by standing. To the remainder of us, having said yes, having said, I want in on this party, then I'd say to you, make yourself ready. Remember one of the things that Jesus said about the Pharisees? He said how they like to make sure that the outside of the cup is clean because that's what's seen. You know, our Father sees what's happening in our heart. He sees our acts of righteous humility. He knows they come from the heart. You know, if the things that you do, the humble things that I know all of you do, if they come from a sense of duty of doing the right thing, that's the outside of the cup. They need to come from the heart. So I'd like for us to take a few moments before we go back to worship. You know, in a moment, we're going to worship Jesus again. And, and that really is it's the most important thing that we can do. It's the most important thing for us to honour the host of the wedding. We're going to worship him in a moment or two. And before I do that, before we get to that, I'd like to take a moment to, as it were, shake out the linen. You know, we've all been given special garments to wear and there's time coming when they will be seen as their kind of bright, clean, impeccable, amazing clothing as we stand with Jesus. But between now and then, sometimes we just need to allow the Holy Spirit to come and blow through us to, you know, when you stick your linen out on the washing line and the wind blows on it, doesn't it? And you take it in and it's like, that has changed. It's clean. It's fresh. I want to take us for take a moment or two just to allow the Holy Spirit to come and blow through and minister to us. So should we, can we stand together? So I was, I was preparing for this morning. I, I, 
I had a picture of, of, a, of an invitation. It was like a, an invite that somebody had received. And I think there could be more than one person that this applies to. It's like an invitation has been sent and it's been kind of stuffed away in a drawer. And it's become crumpled and it's no longer referred to. And I feel like there are people for whom actually your invitation from the Father... It's almost like you feel like, yeah, actually, do you know what? I haven't, I haven't been attending to it. I haven't been thinking about it. This wedding is coming and I haven't, you know, got my clothes ready. I haven't bought a gift. I haven't planned how I'm going to get there. All those things that you do in preparation for a wedding. It's like you've just, it's kind of got stuffed away. It's crumpled and lost. And I, I just feel like for some people, it's like this, this is the moment to just pull that wedding invitation back out of the drawer and read it again. And just to know that you are invited, that there is this time coming that you are making yourself ready for.